Welcome to Truth to Power on Forward Radio in Louisville, Kentucky, 106.5 FM. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are uh, on the line today with Heather Holm. Heather is a, an author, and she, uh, she's an award-winning author and nationally sought-after speaker, spending much of her time passionately educating audiences about the fascinating world of native bees and native plants and how to support them. Heather, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, Art. So uh, how did you get interested in native plants and, and, and in bees and butterflies? Well, it really, the interest started with plants. I think that happens for many people. Um, I was fortunate to grow up on a family property that, you know, my great-great-grandfather established in 1850. So I, as a kid, I roamed the, the woods and the lake and we had a little prairie remnant. So I really had a lot of exposure to nature as an, at an early age. And um, after studying horticulture and biology, I was working in the landscape industry, you know, planting and maintaining traditional gardens uh, many years ago. And when I finally started adding more native plants, uh, I, I just realized the, the difference in insect diversity. And uh, since moving to Minnesota 16 years ago, I primarily have just been gardening 100% with native plants. And, and it was those, those patterns of interactions between insects and plants that I started to see year to year uh, in my own landscape as it changed and transformed and uh, grew over time that really stimulated me to write my first book. So the, the first book that kind of lo looks at these specific interactions between plants and insects. And, and once you go down that insect rabbit hole, I don't think you ever come out. <laughs> Margaret's mm -hmm. nodding her head. Yeah. Right, so you did traditional landscaping and then you got more into native plants and you noticed what a big difference it is in inviting the insects into your garden. Can you tell some details about that? Yeah, so, you know, I always had an appreciation for native plants. Uh, my father taught me how to identify trees, for example. So it wasn't, you know, a foreign thing. But um, when you study horticulture, you know, at, in the early 90s when I did, um, it really, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on creating natural landscapes. So the allure of the latest and greatest cultivar that was from, China or somewhere else was what most people were doing. And, and I really started, started to question practices. You know, we're doing all this extra work in our gardens to rake out leaves and put mulch down. And, and I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a really practical person. I thought this is, this is silly. We're not mimicking natural systems here. We're fighting, we're constantly fighting and trying to keep things in a static state. And I think at some point in time, I just had this epiphany that why am I creating all this work for myself when I can do less is more really. And, and that really plays out with insect diversity in our landscapes. So did you find that it's easier to grow native plants? Yeah, and I think, you know, having that background, um, 
having that understanding of the cultural conditions, the, the soil, that was already a good base for me. And, and it made, it just makes a lot of sense that if you choose native plants that are from your area or region and select the ones that grow in similar conditions, then yeah, it makes your life a lot easier, right? Those plants are going to do well. Um, you're not trying to put a, a square peg into a round hole essentially. Right, so you're from the uh, traditional horticulture and landscaping industry, which tends to push uh, things just for the appearance. And then sometimes those are non-natives and they bring in uh, pathogens from overseas that our native plants aren't and insects aren't adapted for. So uh, what is it costing us in the continental US to be so uh, you know, fixated on appearance but not ecological health? Well, there's a real cost, you know, as far as our, our landscaping, landscapes having functionality, um, you, you hit, a, hit on it exactly hard. It's, it's about those interactions. So if we fill landscapes with plants that are non-native that insects other organisms haven't co-evolved with then it's really a plastic landscape it may be a pretty landscape you know it may be a little more colorful i always think native landscapes are are subtle and you have to grow to appreciate their subtle beauty and and their differences in their beauty um, but yeah, we, we just lose this foundational piece of the plants and insects that are essentially feeding the rest of the food web when we have non-native plants in our gardens. So I'm going to put on the hat of raving fan. Uh, I'm a raving fan of your books, including Pollinators of Native Plants. Uh, I want to tell our audience that th this is a fabulous book, as is your book, Bees, a Native Plant Identification and or a Native Plant Foraging and Identification Guide. Did I get the subtitle right on that or close? Yeah. But I wanted to say that uh, both of the books are extremely well organized. And if you're if you like color coding, you, you'll love uh, these books because they're they're like uh, they're, they're the native plant uh Pollinators of native plants is divided up into three sections. One is for your prairie habitat, one is for your woodland edge habitat, and one is for your wetland edge habitat. Uh, so that's one thing. And then, for example, if you're in a, a pollinator habitat, or in the, uh, it has uh, here's here's what you turn to butterfly weed, and you get all these insect visitors. So. Uh, before I, about the time I discovered your books, Heather, you solved a, a problem for me. I, I always recommend your books and Doug Tallamy's books. Now, there was a time when I just knew Doug Tallamy and I didn't know you yet. So Doug Tallamy introduced me to like host plants and which uh, wh what are the productive host plants for our native caterpillars? And I thought, this is great. Uh, and I also wanted to know about bees. So your books taught me about how do I know not just bees, but insect visitors generally. So um, the, on the front of pollinators of native plants, 
so what are the pollinators of native plants? There are at least six of them according to the cover and they include bees, butterflies, moths, wasps, flies, and beetles. So are all of those different insects pollinators as well as bees? Uh, well, they can be. They, you know, generally the, the insects besides bees are what we would consider incidental pollinators, but there are very specific plant pollinator relationships such as a our flock species and moths and butterflies. Moths and butterflies are the primary pollinator of flocks um, and bees generally aren't. So there's always exceptions to the rule, but because bees are feeding their offspring pollen and nectar and purposefully going to flowers to collect those resources, they're the, in, in many instances can be better and more efficient at transferring pollen from flower to flower. Well, I, I've read from time to time that like wild bees can, it depends on the plant, but wild bees can be more efficient pollinators than honeybees. Is that true? Yeah, again, it's a plant by plant basis. Um, one of the traits that native bees, many native bees possess, but honeybees don't, uh, is the ability to buzz pollinate flowers. And that's essentially shaking pollen from the flower. And there's a number of uh, not only food crops that we grow, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, um, ground cherry, they, and blueberries, for example, those are all plants that require buzz pollination. So uh, if you were to compare a single honeybee with a single bumblebee or other type of native bee, generally the native bee in that situation would be more efficient because it has the, a better ability to extract the flower's pollen. So, so there are a lot of species of native bees, right? So you have your, your matching up uh, of, of bees to the plants that they evolved with. The co you, a while ago, you used the word co-evolved. So it's important, isn't it, that, uh, that bees and other insects co-evolved with the, with the plants that you have in your, in your garden. Right, right. And I mean, not all, not all visits to flowers by insects are what we would call result in pollination or would be uh, beneficial visits. There's, there's certain bees that will steal nectar. Um, there's some that are just very poor at pollinating because they're relatively hairless. So it's not to discount them, um, their importance, but uh, every interaction would be different in, in the individual's insect effectiveness at pollination. But the, to touch on what you said as well, Hart, is Many people are unaware that uh, we have native bee specialists. So you spoke about Doug Tallamy's work and uh, larval host plants for butterfly and moth caterpillars. Well, we have uh, native bees that are specialists and have specific host plants. And it means that the, the female bee, the, the mother bee who's out collecting pollen and nectar from flowers uh, will only collect pollen from a certain kind of plant. So she can be really picky and only uh, visit a single plant genus, or she may have a little bit broader preference, but it could be plants in a single plant family. So that in certain regions in the US, uh, as many as 25% of the native bee species are specialists. Right, so you do, uh, I'm sure, consulting of some sort. And uh, so what's the nature of your work and what do you find that people are eager to learn and eager to do with their own gardens? 
Yeah, I don't do any garden consulting work okay. anymore. Um, too busy usually writing books and mm -hmm. um, presenting. But generally people are just interested in um, enhancing their existing gardens. What, what can they add to add more flower color and flowering at different times throughout the growing season? There's some very simple tools uh, that all of us, no matter where we live, can consider. And it's, I call it having the restaurant open 24 seven. So I, I live in the upper Midwest, we have a short growing season. So the, the early spring and late fall can, can be really critical times for, for our native bees. And so I try and tell people that you need to really make sure you have a, an adequate amount of plants blooming in the spring and fall. The summer is usually always taken care of quite well, but, and, and it really depends on where you live. Um, for you, you folks in Kentucky, you probably have uh, a really nice um, diversity of flowering shrubs and trees that are insect pollinated that we wouldn't have here in the upper Midwest that would fill in that spring window for you. I see. So what are some things that people can plant to give? So you're saying that in the, in the spring and the fall, it's really important to have, uh, because summer might more, be more naturally abundant with flowers that uh, bees can feed on. So what can people plant in the spring uh, that blooms in the spring? And what can people plant that blooms in the fall? Yeah, I'll start with the fall since we're some of you are still in fall. I, I'm I'm not. <laughs> we're we're socked in with snow right now, so uh, we had our fall door slam very quickly on us. But uh, so for fall, you really want to focus on the goldenrods and asters. So plants in that in the aster family. So that in, can include um, some additional plants such as the uh, eupatoriums, but. Uh, for many of those specialists and also migratory species, if we switch off from the bee, the bee speak here, um, migratory butterflies like monarchs, uh, the plants like goldenrods and asters are really good food sources for them to migrate. And then we have native bees that uh, don't emerge until late summer or early fall. So they have that pretty short window of time that they need to find their pollen and nectar resources to um, provision their nests and lay their eggs. So the, that's definitely, um, I, I always, I'd say to people have at least three species of goldenrod and three species of aster in your garden. And I think that probably applies pretty much everywhere in the US except for maybe the Southwest. But for all of us in the East, um, we have a number of different goldenrods and asters to choose from. Switching to the spring, uh, where I live in the mid upper Midwest, willow is a very important early spring plant. Um, so it depends on where you live and what, uh, how much space you have. Many willows can be aggressive, but that's usually the first pollen and nectar source for the early emerging bees. And it's very high, the pollen's very high in protein. And the other piece about willow is it supports uh, the highest number, some of the highest numbers of specialist bees. So that's a really important one. But as I mentioned for you folks in Kentucky, you have more flowering shrubs to choose from uh, in early spring that would fill a lot of that, that window that we wouldn't have available here in the upper Midwest. So uh, willow, uh, what species? Uh, uh, 
willow, but we have okay. a lot of uh, maple species. Yeah. Yep. Here in, in Louisville in particular, half the trees are maple species, like sugar maple or red maple. And uh, I one time found a ton of honeybees on the flowers of a Japanese maple, of all things, right? So it got me wondering how many, but I've never quite seen any native bees going for them, but are there any that go for maple since we have a lot of maples here? Yeah, so yeah, if you live in the Eastern US, like you just said, Margaret, we have a number of different maple species. Um, red maple tends to be a little bit later flowering and that flowering will often co coincide with native bee emergence. Um, sugar maples can get some insect pollination, but sometimes relies on wind pollination. Um, but yeah, maples, I would say, is the other really critical one besides willow uh, for most of the eastern U.S. to, to consider. And it, I, call it, I call it the vertical flower power, right? You can you imagine a, a 25 or 30 foot tree flowering? And if you were to lay that down, what the equivalent amount of garden space that would equate to. So um, you get a lot of bang for your buck just by planting a, a very specific tree that is insect pollinated. I'm not sure if you uh, named shrubs, that. Shrubs, bladder nut, which blooms early. Yep. What a, I happen to have two of them. Whoa, do I get a diversity, even in the city, diversity of bees, native bees on the, on those full, like almost blueberry looking like clusters of flowers on them, which are fairly early. Um, yep. And, yep. you know, so it's a great shrub, I think, if you've got part shade. Yep, bladder nuts, wonderful. Especially, like you said, part shade, it's a beautiful specimen plant or understory. If you have a shade garden, um, buckeyes. So if you have some native buckeyes in your area, those are uh, great. Usually they they flower with the uh, arrival of hummingbirds coming back north. So bumblebees and hummingbirds love uh, buckeye trees. So yeah, there's uh, I what I always remind people in the spring is don't forget to look up. You know, you have this subtle uh, pollinator activity maybe happening in woodlands with those first uh, woodland spring wildflowers that are blooming but that's really really subtle <laughs> but most people forget to look up because a lot of that early bee activity is up in the trees and tall shrubs. I often talk to people who have a lot of shade in their yards and they say I guess I can't do pollinator gardening and, and I point out trees and shrubs but also you know, you've got a place to put spring ephemerals that can, you know, bluebells or um, water hyacinth, you know, I mean, hydrophyllum. Anyway, that they, they only think of pollinator gardens as being that bright, you know, all that blooming diversity in the summer. But spring, I says, you know, you might have a yard that could feed this feed the bees in the spring and your neighbor could have the yard that feeds them in the summer. If we can get together in neighborhoods, you know, and all that diversity of how people manage their yards, man, you could, you know, just do, you know, you don't have to be the one who feeds them in the summer if you can't, you know, you feed them in the spring then, you know, I don't, you know, so I try to encourage people to think about spring ephemerals. In, in their garden plantings if they can't, especially if they can't do the summer sun garden. Yeah, exactly, Margaret. Um, 
I think you hit on something of what people perceive is that pollinator gardens equal sunny perennial gardens that are blooming in the summer, right? And, and it, the pollinator activity is subtle in our woodlands, but you can have a beautiful shade garden with, like you said, Margaret, spring blooming plants, the, the shrubs, the trees, and you're really um, helping a lot of those spring species. Do that now that it is fall. Where where do a lot of our native bees spend fall and winter? And can and as a means of trying to pro provide, you know, people think of provisioning them with food, but they need, you know, places to you know hide out under harsh conditions and places to nest. So could you talk a little bit about how we can provide them with shelter sure. in the winter and if it always coincides with nests or not? I don't know. Yeah, so the, of all the native bee species in the US, approximately 90% have a solitary lifestyle. So that's a single female who's uh, built, excavated a nest below ground or found a nest above ground in a cavity. And so during the growing season, she is active for a certain window of time. We've talked about bees that come out in spring. Uh, where and ones that come out in fall, but everybody has their own window if depending on the bee. And so right now for those 90% of solitary bees, uh, the adults have perished, but it's their larva or offspring that are safely tucked away in nests below ground or in above ground in cavities. So we don't necessarily have to worry about them too much unless we're doing um, things such as heavy digging in our gardens that could dig up nests or we're cleaning up our gardens which you know some of those places where they have built a nest in a cavity and we'd be uh, breaking all that up and uh, putting that material out to the curb for pickup so that there's a risk of that. Um, the 10% of native bees that are social include our bumblebee species as well as some of our sweat bees and they overwinter as adults. So the, the, only the females survive, they're the new uh, queens for the following growing season. And so they would be tucking themselves in a nice little insulated place under leaf litter, uh, sometimes in a compost pile. Where I live, where it's colder in the north, they may look for an abandoned rodent hole. But so they're, they're overwintering as adults, so they can be a little more susceptible to things that were practices we're doing in our garden in fall, such as tromping around on the ground on leaf litter or um, digging or anything like that could impact those overwintering female adults. Um, well, since most of us here in Wild Ones Louisville, we're in a city, more urban kind of uh, place, we have you know, a narrower spectrum of bees and pollinators, but still I think cities can do a, a tremendous job in helping conservation as a whole. Um, and by planting more native plants and, and protecting habitat in general, but also, you know, in our yards in particular. In, in fact, in Louisville, I did a quick calculation with a student and 31% of the county's area, okay, is uh, plantable space, plantable in residential, just in residential alone. So we could, if even 10% of it, you know, were, were planted in natives, 
we could equal half of all our already you know park system that's here and we have one of the largest but believe it or not urban metropolitan forest parks in Jefferson County Memorial Forest in the nation and uh, and even with that if if even just you know we got rid of some of our lawn and substituted native plants just 10 percent of residential plantable space could equal uh, half of what we've got in, in our park system. So um, it's considerable. So for me, one of the issues though is, is you, you touched on it earlier, is convincing people to do it. And, and I agree, you know, tucking it into whatever other species you already have in your landscaping is a great way to start. Um, but if you want it to go more fully native, people's perceptions of them are that they're scraggly and ugly. Right, and they don't want to plant them in, say, front yards anyway, for that reason. So, have people in landscaping been, been developing a palette of, of native native plants that are a little less rambunctious, say? <laughs> um, I mean, or do you have some favorites? You know, that people could who wanted to do it and kind of inoculate their, their neighborhood with the idea, you know, and not have it look too scraggly. Uh, I think that's important. And I'm just wondering if that's being developed by people who are more, you know, involved in that aspect of horticulture and landscape architecture. Absolutely. I think what um, the term gets thrown around cues to care. So you can't just turn your front yard totally wild, depending on where you live. <laughs> I could get away with it in my little end of the cul-de-sac suburban yard. My neighbors know me well enough, but, <laughs> but for many people that's, that's a non-starter. So some of the cues to care include um, doing more orderly plantings, selecting uh, native plants that don't get too tall. So for example, selecting uh, and massing low growing shrubs in the front yard and maybe a diversity of those uh, would look neat and tidy. It would be easy to maintain. You could maintain it in that more static state of groupings. And that would be aesthetically ac acceptable to most people. Uh, other things people do, obviously, is to put up signs just to educate people if you're in the process of transforming your front lawn into a native planting. Uh, education goes a long way, even if, it, if it's just with a sign. Uh, other cues to care include leaving um, a turf grass border or a, an edge that looks that it's maintained in a traditional way. So it separates the native landscape from the sidewalk or the street edge. And that just gives people a little bit more, oh, this person didn't let their lawn go wild <laughs> or their front yard go wild. <laughs> um, some of the things we're doing in the upper Midwest is um, doing a lot more matrix planting of sedges and shorter uh, prairie grass species as, as the foundational uh, part of the planting and then putting in flowering plants into that. So that's being used a lot now and even in public landscapes and municipalities. And so you have a, a prairie look, but uh, more flower diverse. And then the uh, foundation of grasses and sedges that stay lower. So you have that natural look, but you still have enough uh, flower color and aesthetics that would please different people. So it's really about, yeah, working around these things of 
avoiding those species that are really aggressive because we all have native plants that can go haywire very quickly in ideal conditions um, and may be appropriate in our backyard, but not in a, in a public planting. Yeah. So those are, those are some things I've seen trending and it's really about also just this long-term education, right? If, um, getting people to come around to the idea that it is beautiful and it natural is beautiful. It doesn't have to be as orderly as we uh, think it should be basing it on traditional landscapes. Well, speaking of, of beauty and design, uh, Heather, you have in, in your book, Pollinators of Native Plants, you have several garden designs, a boulevard design, a bioswale, a woodland edge, a leafcutter bee, a bumblebee garden. Each one of them has a layout and uh, suggested plants in it. And I wanted to ask you about uh, the, your, your bioswale slash ditch slash rain garden. So you have a plan for wet soil and, and no matter what it's called, whether it's called a rain garden, etc. You uh, recommend among other plants, a prairie blazing star an Indian grass and a swamp milkweed. So what are some of the things, what are some of the things that you consider in terms of plant selection and other design issues related to rain gardens? Yeah, so rain gardens, if they're properly designed, should drain the water uh, within the first 24 to 48 hours because you don't want standing water for mosquito larvae. Um, so you really are selecting plants that can tolerate that short period of flooding. So they don't mind having their roots wet or being submerged in water for 24 to 48 hours, but then, it, and then, but then the water should drain out and it, out of the rain garden. Um, so we, we just have to take cues from nature. Uh, what are some of the native plants that grow along our wetlands? And they would maybe be appropriate to use in that more constructed situation like a rain garden. And like you said, Hart, the, the, I tried to organize my first book by plant communities to give people a sense to not only start thinking that way, but if you're going out for your walk and you're in the local park, start looking at what, what where plants grow and you can get a lot of ideas of understanding your own yard's conditions and what would be appropriate based on what you see growing in the wild. So you also have a, a design for a, a boulevard pollinator garden and I believe that is that like a, a prairie meadow kind of thing uh, and, and if so you know one issue that people have with uh, prairie meadows is that like, how do you grow the native plants and control the weeds? Yeah, so part of that foundational matrix of sedges and prairie grasses can help, help a lot with weed suppression. Uh, when you're first planting, um, of course, you're gonna have weeds because you'll have bare soil or gaps between the plants until they mature. But getting that real thick, dense layer of sedges and grasses as your foundation, you won't need to mulch or put any other material for weed suppression on, on top of that garden because the grasses are doing that job. And it's really this above ground matrix of different plant heights. So you have your flowering plants coming up above the grasses and sedges, but they also have the deeper root systems in the grasses and sedges. So you have almost a mirror image of root systems and above ground growth. Mm -hmm. 
one of the challenges with boulevards, uh, especially where I live, is road salt. So um, I, I don't think I fully thought about all the implications of road salt when I did that design for the book. <laughs> so we, you know, we're just starting to learn what plants can tolerate uh, road salt and high, high, high salt conditions. Um, the other consideration for boulevard plantings, which is generally the space between a sidewalk and a street, is those plants have to be very short to, to meet city ordinances. Uh, generally because of traffic and safety concerns, you, you don't want six foot tall plants that um, block a driver's view from pulling out of their driveway or uh, a public corner. So mm -hmm. that's another consideration. Well, one thing that you hinted at earlier is that, you know, uh, having pollinator habitat is not just about wildflowers. It's also about trees and things like that. Uh, what are some of the uh, functions that trees provide for pollinators? I mean, they, they're a water source, right? Yes, they can be. Um, sometimes even just the sap can be an alternative sugary food source for some of our pollinators. Uh, for example, wasps really like tree sap in early spring. Um, the other thing trees provide after they die and uh, you know start to decay and other insects bore into them, or they fall, the trunks fall over and the logs lie on the ground, that provides nesting habitat. So we have a number of uh, wood nesting native bees that will seek out cavities in standing dead trees or logs lying on the ground. Uh, and those are all sort of habitat components that we can start to think about in our own gardens. Whether I wouldn't drag a log into your front yard, <laughs> but um, you know, if you have the space or the property size and availability of some logs, those are excellent to, to you know, aesthetically incorporate is what I usually say into your garden. I have a number of logs because my house sits up on a hill and it slopes on one side or two sides rather. So I, I went, first started con to convert the turf grass to native plantings. I use logs perpendicular across the slope to, to slow water um, and plant upslope of those logs. And so that as the logs break down, they help provide nutrients to the plants. Uh, and then, and the secondary benefit is nesting habitat. Well, shouldn't we try to get rid of all the leaves, limbs, and logs? I mean, <laughs> so the, I say let your leaves, limbs, and logs lie. You know, a, a snag is a, a dead tree is a snag, and in, in a in a natural forest, it, it lasts for decades, if not centuries, and, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a habitat thing. So what would you tell people to try to persuade them to let, let their, uh, you know, to, to leave logs and, and things like that? Yeah, so, it you know, it depends. If you're right in the city, you obviously can't leave a giant standing dead tree that could eventually fall over on your house. Um, but there, there's always creative solutions to that. My friend, good friend, for example, lives in a small urban lot. She had a really large silver maple uh, removed, but left 15 feet of the trunk, the snag, uh, standing. And then she um, incorporated native vines to grow up in. And that standing tree has provided more habitat in her little urban yard than anywhere in, in, in a woodlot, <laughs> I would say. 
Um, and so that so Ireland's love it too. <laughs> I bet. At least here, it was a, a snag like that. Yeah. 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 And they loved it for years. <laughs> so maybe your neighbors wouldn't like that, especially, but um, this was in her backyard. So, you know, it's trying to find these creative workarounds to um, looking at how these natural elements like dead wood and standing dead trees and leaf litter really are critical for some part of an insect's life cycle. And if we can continue to come up with creative ways to incorporate those in our gardens, uh, I'm all for it. I'm always asking people for their ideas because um, one of the things I've been promoting for many years is uh, flower stalk stubble, which becomes opportunities for some of our smaller cavity nesting bees. And uh, the folks at Missouri Botanical Garden heard me present and then they said, well, we can do that in our but at the botanical garden, we'll just uh, do it a little more purposefully and aesthetically. So they they poked the stem stubble back into the ground into a serpentine pattern to make it more aesthetically pleasing to the public. But you could do the you could do something similar in your own garden. So one thing that you're getting at is to, to change. Well, um, Ma I Margaret, just want to ask one big one. Sure, your your video, your audio tends to fade in and out. So okay, if so you, if I'll you talk, talk a little louder. Thanks. Okay. Oh, uh, I have yeah. One question that I know a lot of uh, gardeners are curious about, and it and it harkens back to plants that are more predictable in their morphology, you know, and habit structure, and but what the implications might be for pollinator pollinators. And that is the issue of nativars versus, you know, the natives themselves that have a lot more genetic diversity in them. And, and the whole issue of uh, nectar quality and pollen quality for bees and other pollinators. And I just wondered if, if you're more aware than I am at the moment of re any research that is coming out a little bit more on that, more studies on that, and what, for now, your opinion might be? Yeah, I, I think you hit on it, Margaret. So we've had some initial studies look at pollinator visitation uh, and compare a native R to the straight species. Um, Fine native R for some of these folks? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry? Could you define native R for some? Oh, yes, it's a cultivated variety of a, a native species. So in the wild, for example, um, someone finds a, a darker pink blooming uh, native plant that's what's typical. So they vegetatively propagate that because of its interesting trait. And so going to your point, Margaret, that's, that's a, a loss of genetic diversity if we're putting one particular uh, plant back into the landscape that has the same genetics as the next. So. Um, so going back to the, the studies that have been conducted so far. So Doug Tallamy, he has uh, folks doing some work at Mount Cuba to look at some of our native species and cultivars. Um, but what I'm waiting for, and I think this is where you were getting at Margaret is we we're sort of, we've done some superficial looks at visitation and nectar production but we haven't really looked at the quality of the floral resources. So 
Um, how does a cultivar change the quantity of nectar produced is one thing, but what's the difference in the pollen protein content? Mm -hmm. So we really are looking at it from, from the bee standpoint of they want the most nutritious, we wanna provide them with the most nutritious food we can for them to feed their offspring. And if a cultivar is just simply less nutritious, um, those questions haven't been answered yet. And that's, that's what I would like to know as well. Yeah. All right, so for our audience, we're talking about uh, cultivar as a type of breed of a plant. And we have cultivars that the horticulture industry pushes because they might look nicer or they might be shorter or more convenient, that kind of thing. Uh, what Heather and Margaret are talking about is that, you know, we, we, we've studied how much the uh, insect visitation of plants and maybe the, uh, of some plants, but we, there's, so, there's so much that we don't know about native ours, about native cultivars. So it's probably best to go with the, with the straight species, right, Heather? Yeah, I think for now until, uh, you know, a lot more research gets published on, on the subject. Um, there, I think Annie White's research showed most of the comparison she made between native ours and straight species is the bees preferentially visited the straight species more than the native are. There were some exceptions. But uh, again, if we think of this from the bee standpoint, right, bees uh, don't have the same color vision as humans do. So we are generally in the horticultural trade selecting plants that look prettier or like you said, heart, um, maybe are a little shorter and don't get so tall. Uh, things that we want as gardeners, but we're not thinking about how that could change the way the attractiveness of the, the flower, especially if we're selecting for a slightly different flower color. And it may look better to us, but it may be very different in the way the bee would see it or find it attractive. So we have all these unanswered questions about um, native ours and whether they're, you know, they're appropriate for all landscapes. So how do we provide habitats for bees? Aren't some bees ground nesting and then others uh, nest in maybe hollow stems and things like that? What can we do around our uh, yards, gardens, and public parks for bee habitat? Yeah, again, just mimicking what I call mother nature's template. So leaving leaf litter, uh, incorporating those natural materials, Trying to do less is more. Um, the other thing I'm trying to get pe people away from is using wood mulch in their gardens. Hmm. So we go back to the way we plant our gardens. Our traditional gardens tend to be plants are spaced apart, not touching. <laughs> and then we mulch in between them every year and it's a lot of work, right? You have to buy the mulch and then you have to put the mulch in the garden <laughs> and so on. Well, mulch, depending on the type can be really form almost like this concrete barrier between uh, a bee, a native bee that wants to excavate a nest in the ground. So that's why it's better to transition to natural materials such as leaf litter as, as your ground layer. And as I touched on before, it's about planting density. So we have to plant our gardens a little bit differently if they're native. Um, having that foundation of the sedges and grass, as I mentioned, is an excellent weed barrier. So it really 
uh, you wouldn't need to have mulch if, if you planted your garden like that. Roy Diblick, uh, who's a plant de garden designer, I, he, I love this quote from him. He said, plants like to be hugged. Have you ever seen a plant in nature that's by itself and not mm -hmm. touching another plant? <laughs> right. And that's how we tend to plant our traditional gardens. So, um, and as many of you know, who already garden with native plants, some of them can seed heavily. And if we have dense plantings with the ground covered, uh, we don't have as much of those heavy cedars having success of producing offspring <laughs> all mm -hmm. over our gardens. Okay. Yeah. So you're talking about weed control and you said trying to wean people off of bought mulch, use, yeah. use leaves, leaf litter if you can. I'll so your sedges, your grass, a sedge is a type of grass. So if you have that, that, that provides that thick uh, bottom layer that it tends to suppress weeds. And, um, and also if you have the right plant community, then the, those plants will grow well together, will naturally seed and, and fill in the gaps. Right. You, you want to have that right balance of the right, the plants that are normally grow together and in balance. It's when we experiment and bring in things that may not be appropriate for the local plant community that things get a little imbalanced and we may have one plant being overly aggressive and taking up a lot of real estate. So, but that's all really part of the learning process with uh, landscaping with native plants. I don't think anybody stops learning, right? right. <laughs> I always say the plants tell you what they want and uh, my good friend who lives, you know, a thousand feet away has the same soil type and gardens with the same native plants. They perform and behave very differently than they do in my yard. So it can be that localized of, of what an individual <laughs> I'm laughing because what I say is, you know, sometimes, you know, all of a sudden the plant, you, know, you want that plant to be in a certain spot, right? And you keep trying and you keep trying. And then you give up, right? Because it just doesn't like it. And then you see it pop up somewhere else. And you know, sometimes that just letting it go and finding its own spot, if that's what it wants to do, can be even more visually aesthetically intriguing. You know, I say, you know, that doesn't look bad there. I hadn't considered that, you know? And, and it's fun seeing, it's kind of Darwinian in a way, but also aesthetically, nice aesthetic surprises can happen if you let them find where they want to be sometimes, you know? Yeah, so, you know, it's an experiment, you know? And I guess some people don't want to experiment that much, but look at it as an experiment and it's not, you know, and so something doesn't go as you had planned. Something else goes as unplanned and, it's maybe better, you know, or so you try again next year. What have you lost? You know, really, it's not, you know, life or death to us. It may be for a bee, but not for us. So experiment, have fun. That's exactly right, Margaret. I mean, there are some instances where those those certain plants like to seed right in between your sidewalk and your and they're six feet tall. Which, <laughs> well, that I know that happen. Yeah, yeah, that happens. But um, but what I think you're getting at is the the gar our gardens are dynamic, and we have to stop fighting this idea that we need to keep them static in the exact same way that we planted them because that that's just making more work for yourself right 
Uh, I'm all about having free time to photograph pollinators in my garden, not worrying about what where a plant wants to move around uh, most of the time. So. I mean, most of them stay where I want. So there is a, a sort of a, 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 a vertebra, you know, a skeleton that stays there and forms the architecture in general, but the others kind of pop in and out and every year is a nice little, you know, I like you there. And if you don't like them there, Move them, kill them, dig them, whatever you want if you've got others elsewhere, you know? I mean, you don't have to let a six foot tall plant be in a place that's in your way. You just take it away when it's younger. So, you know, but it's, uh, so you can have, you know, some, but sometimes it's just a great pleasant surprise visually where, where they can pop up sometimes and say, I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> Yeah, or many years can go by and then all of a sudden the plant reappears. That happened to me this year, cardinal flower, you know, the red lobelia. Yes, it happened to me last year. I said, I haven't had a cardinal flower succeed in the backyard in seven years. And then all of a sudden two popped up somewhere where I just like, why are you there? I didn't even put you there before. What? Where was that from? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's a surprise all these different strategies, right? I think lobelia, the red lobelia or cardinal flower likes mm -hmm. light for germination and some sort of disturbance. So planting another plant could be the, uh, the reason why it shows up three years later, somewhere else in your garden. Somewhere else, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Well, Heather, in your community, what have you seen in the last few years in terms of how, how the trends are going. Are there more native plants, uh, native plant gardens, pub, are there, is there more awareness in public parks and how's that going? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, people are, the native plant movement kind of started in the upper Midwest. So we we're fortunate to have uh, over 25 native plant nurseries to choose from. And I know when I travel and speak to folks, they, they say, I have to travel, drive 250 miles to the nearest native plant nursery in some cases. So we're pretty fortunate. Um, I would say there's, there's a pretty good awareness. Uh, we're still trying to influence how parks, going back to just main maintenance, whether it's a garden or a public park. Um, trying to influence doing things a little bit differently, um, mowing less often, how can we incorporate more pollinator plantings into our park spaces. One idea that um, I was helping a woman with is in our larger regional parks, she's come up with a, a plan and grant application to establish residential sized gardens in, in regional parks. And as an example, even with a, a front door to give people a sense, this is, a, this is a, a plot that's a quarter acre and have maybe three of them side by side that someone can look at that are all planted differently, but all with natives to give, the, give them ideas of what, what is possible uh, back in your home landscape. So, many people still don't think about nature as, or they do think about nature as being somewhere else. Nature is in the, in our local park or our state park. Um, but bringing the nature in those parks and giving people the idea to take it back and put nature in your home garden. That's, that's sort of, we're trying to flip the, that around in those examples. I noticed that in your CV, you actually have been working, since we're also urban, but you have been uh, 
working uh, with three projects, it says here, uh, restoring approximately 10 acres of city-owned land in your neighborhood for pollinators and people. Uh, how's that going? That's, that's going really well. Um, so yeah, my husband and I spend most of our spare time working in the um, parks in our neighborhood. We uh, have a five acre uh, parcel that was never developed. So that's a woodland remnant. We've spent 15 years removing invasive species from that site. Um, we have since adopted a, a, a corner lot that the city owned that was chock full of invasive species. It was so degraded. And we uh, organized our neighborhood of 32 residents and had people come out and help with all the invasive plant removal and have been restoring that property since since that. So I, I going back to not spending a whole lot of time in my home landscape anymore, <laughs> letting it be <laughs> dynamic and uh, letting mother nature do her thing. Um, I spend most of my time in the local restorations and I learn from those as well. Um, how can we turn around a, a very degraded site? The site was a, you know, in the 1920s was a streetcar line and then it was I think farmers dumped everything and anything in on site and then the power company took it over for their power line and then it was just neglected and filled with invasive plants. So that that's a pretty uh, interesting land use history and how can we bring it back, right? And that has been an astounding project because the the quantity of pollinators that came to that site just within uh, a year and a half of invasive species removal and, and seeding it with native plants has been, I, I, I can't believe it, to be honest. So, um, so that's a fun project to document pollinator diversity over time. The other one is um, trying to bring back a, a remnant plant community by removing invasive species and getting the soil to heal, starting to see tree seedling germination um, all those things that you would expect. And it's become a wonderful template for the neighborhood to say, this is what a woodland should look like without invasive species because we're becoming plant blind, many of us. We don't, we, many people see green and green is good, but we're, I worry about the next generation not knowing what a, a landscape or a plant community should look like versus what it looks, does look like with invasive species. So one thing I hear you well, saying. It's, it's really heartening to see that in terms of conservation and uh, that if you give nature just half a chance, you know, it, it isn't going to come back full fledged what it was, you know, 100, 200 years ago or something, but it's going to be way better. And it's so heartening and it can be an educational experience for, you know, outings for children. I mean, it's, it's also about, you know, it's really about like you hinted at really is the next generation and and getting excited and seeing it, you know, with their own eyes is very different than looking at it in a Disney movie, you know, and uh, yeah. that and, and 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 in removing the invasives, you can make such a big difference. And it reminds me, too, of what happened in the Presidio last year in San Francisco, where a bee that was thought to be extinct was there all along after the Presidio was picked up by the National Park Service and they removed invasives. All of a sudden they're finding the silver digging bee, I think it was. And it, 
so nature, if we just, you know, collectively as in neighborhoods, even in cities, we can be just so pleasantly surprised at this point if we just give nature half a chance. So, and our yards can be those little places, those spots that can be nuclei for that to happen. Yep. And, uh, the, you know, and hopefully we can convince other neighbors, you know, to do the same. So we've got a couple of minutes left. Heather, what, what is it that motivates you to do this work? Uh, what is it that, you know, gives you a thrill? And, uh, and also, you know, one thing I hear you saying is that it's a, when you do remove invasives, they, the, the, you get a lot of results pretty quick is what I'm hearing you saying. Yeah, you do. And it doesn't, it really doesn't matter if it's a highly degraded site like my corner lot or a, a woodland remnant. Uh, you, you do start to see things come back that are in the seed bank um, that are just basically astounding in some cases that you think, okay, after 40 years of invasive plants filling this site and, um, and to have this plant come back is, is really, that's what makes me keep going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, it's been, I, I want to pitch both of your books once again. Uh, Pollinators of Native Plants is excellent by Heather Holm. Uh, lots of good information, very visually appealing, very well organized. And it, it taught me uh, a whole lot about uh, insect visitors, like all the insects that visit uh, plants. And it has great garden designs in it and uh, lots of great plant recommendations. The other book, I think Margaret has your other book there, Bees and Identification and Native Plant Forage Guide. And it is similarly very well organized and it taught you everything you ever wanted to know about the different species of bees, the different groups that they fall into, what, uh, they, what they rely on for habitat, especially plants. Um, Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real treat. Thank you. It's great to speak with you both. Everybody ha hang nice on. We're gonna end the recording, but you can stay on the line.